Hello, and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. This, this next section uh, will be a, probably a little bit shorter. Normally what we do when we do these is we take five weeks and do hour and a half sessions. So to try, I know this is a lot of material to cover, but I'll tell you, you really don't want to miss the last one because it's really the best section of the book about uh, conduct, the one after this one. But anyway, there was a, there was a question about something. You, you were making a statement about something at the end. Can you tell us? As a sponsor, and I sponsored a lot of guys over the years, a lot of times you can you can get bound up by other people, and sometimes you can get freed. A lot of times your sponsor might even join you in your grievance because he's got the same one, going toward women or something like that. When I did inventory, I did it by myself. I took the book and I just did it. I just wrote it out and then it started to induce those experiences that I'm talking about. Now, one of the things, now in, in answer, in, in response to your question, one of the things, Bob and I are not trying to say we know how to forgive anything. I'm not trying to tell you I know how to do it. All I'm doing is reporting incidents, circumstances from my own life. I can't tell you how to forgive anything, and nor do I think a sponsor we might be able to help you see things in a different light in some ways. I don't know, you know. That's but one thing that what we're trying to do is we're trying to show you the mechanics so God can come in. Remember, we're asking God to help us see it differently in that third between the third and the fourth column. The paragraph right above the fourth column on page 67, is simply saying, God, help me see this differently, okay? So we're asking God to help us. Uh, we're just trying to report some things that have happened to us. Because, you know, it's like this gentleman over here was talking about uh, uh, killing somebody in a car accident. Uh, it, it, this stuff is definitely, I don't know how somebody's going to get over that, but if you'll write this stuff out and you'll get and take a look at it, God can help you if you'll ask him to help you. But by doing nothing is the way it'll stay the same. Now, you might be able to talk to people. Maybe people can help you. The problem I have when I try and help somebody do inventory is there's a tendency of me trying to figure it out. And whenever I do that, I can feel it dropping into nonsense. I, you know what I mean? It's my ideas then, not the... And sometimes I'll get ideas that may be from God. I don't know. So it can help that way too. I, I really don't know. You want to say something? Oh, okay. There was something else that somebody said on the break. What, what the heck was it? it? Reminded me of something. Where the heck is it? Oh, you were talking in the yellow shirt back. You were, remember we were talking about something? Oh, he's talking about the eighth step. Yeah, you see, in the fourth column on page 67, at the very end of it, it says, when we saw our faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. We admitted our wrongs honestly and were willing to set these matters straight. Okay? We're admitting our wrongs in the people that we were resentful at. You'll have a transformative experience at some point and you'll find out that the very people that you're, you thought had hurt you are the people you owe amends to. Now that isn't obvious until you've had the experience. 
It looks just the opposite. You want them to make amends to you. But that's what happened with my dad. Okay? I saw that I was wrong. It didn't, it, I saw that my story wasn't accurate. He didn't ruin my life. I ruined my life. That's the kind of thing I started to see through the experience. I didn't figure anything out. I just saw I was wrong about him. I just was wrong. My story wasn't accurate. See? And I saw that through looking at a resentment toward Pam. So part of your eight step will come out of this, your eight step list, the people that you're going to try and become willing. I was very willing once I did inventory. I saw very clearly it was easy to make that amend to my dad because I felt so bad about the way I'd been treating him, the gossiping and all the crap, and slandering him. For years I did that based on a story that wasn't even accurate. So I wrote him that letter. So your eight-step list will be, there'll be more to it than just the people that you're resentful at. There are many people that I caused problems for that I wasn't resentful at that I stole from or did something to, you know. Sometimes you'll build a case against those people to justify why you stole from them. You always got to make it reasonable for the mind. It, it wants to love, and to get it to hate, you have to make a story up. But, you know, I, one of the things, yeah, I just want to do something kind of quick here, if you don't mind. I, I've got a letter. I remember I told you I wrote my dad a letter. Now, this, I get this back from him. I didn't expect this. But this is a wonderful letter. It's just an incredible experience. This is dated February 25th, 1988. I sobered up September 4th, 1987. All of this happened within six months of sobriety. Okay? So it can happen real early. Now, this is a man, I want to tell you, just a, he was 20 years sober when he wrote this letter to me. I was about three months sober when I wrote the letter to him, or four months sober. I get this back. Never talked of his alcoholism. Swept it under the rug like nothing happened. That's a major mistake. And in the amend steps, okay, uh, you'll see that. They, they talk about a guy coming out of the cyclone cellar to find his home ruined. You know, the storm came through. To his wife, he remarked, don't see anything the matter here, Ma. Ain't it grand? The wind stopped blowing. That's offensive. You know how offensive it is. When, it's like somebody coming up to you, they steal something from you, you know and they know that they took it from you, and the next time you see them, they act like nothing happened. Are you offended by that? Well, it's the same thing with your alcoholism. To sweep it under the rug is really, it's extremely offensive to people who grew up around you or your children and that sort of thing. It's very important, and they say this around the ninth step, to sit down with the family and frankly analyze the past, being very careful not to criticize them. That's the way it's said. There's an action that you do. And that big book, if you follow it, you'll have the experience. Well, my dad didn't do any of that, okay? He just didn't. He swept it under the rug. He stayed sober. He changed his life. That's great. But he never talked of any of it. And my brother Bill, who died drunk, angry at my dad from his childhood, I talked to him a week, was livid with my dad. He'd been in lots of therapy, and he was right. And it was killing him. And he ended up smashing his motorcycle through a brick wall, drunk. So, I, you know, I know that that rage will kill you. It'll destroy you. Well, this is what I get back after I wrote that letter to my dad, thanking him for staying sober from the time I was 11. Hoping I could walk in his shoes in recovery. I would pay him any money that I owed him. I would do whatever I had to do to clean up my mess with him. And I was sincere. I get this back. He says, Dear Rick, I got your very welcome letter today. Believe me, it was a very wonderful expression of your feelings, 
and your desire and courage to change your life around. I know how difficult it is to turn 180 degrees, but I know you can do it. You are going about it in the right way. I am very proud of you. Oh, he never talked to me like this. This is a man who never talked of anything emotional. You know, Rick, we people in AA never get through making amends to people we have hurt. I have hurt you as well as my other kids. I can never complete making amends. Isn't that something? I can never make amends to my mother as I should have. See, he's carrying a lot of regrets because he didn't follow through with some stuff. And she's dead and can't clean it up. I can never make amends to your mother as I should have. When my mother died, he was about six or seven years sober. He had six or seven years to clean up his mess with his wife, and he didn't do it. He got regrets, guys. You can avoid these regrets. I just have to do the next best thing, and that is to work this AA program the best I can and constantly try to put into practice those seven little words of step 12, practice these principles in all our affairs. Rick, you have made amends to me in a way you'll never realize. Just keep on doing things as you are now doing, and you will find a great life ahead of you. I do realize. When you get well, you heal your parents. You understand that? I know this from Al-Anon, because I've been going for 20 years. Every week I go to that meeting, and I see parents of children, you know, people my age coming in with adult children, and they feel responsible for their kids. Well, if I'd have just got to drinking and they're doing drugs, and if I'd have just spent more time at home with them, if, I'd have, if I wouldn't have worked so much, if I'd have taken them with me on the strip, then it wouldn't be like this. And I would generally say to that, well, if you screwed them up, why don't you fix them? Well, you shouldn't be able to fix them if you can screw them up, right? See, they know they can't. There's a good example of taking responsibility for stuff that's got nothing to do with you and maybe not taking responsibility for other things that might have something to do with you. I made decisions and choices that I wanted to make. The fact of the matter is that's just the truth of the matter. I don't know that any of it really had much to do with my childhood. But I'm telling you, if you're blaming your parents, you will blame yourself. If you got all kinds of judgment against your own parents for their mistakes, don't you think you're going to judge yourself with your own children? You'll never get free without forgiveness toward your parents then. So when I got well, my dad didn't feel responsible anymore. You understand? He felt guilty as long as I was sick. And I saw that when I'd talk about my brother Bill who died drunk because he was depressed. And, that, and whenever I'd talk to my dad about it, my dad would react negatively. And you get angry. You can just see it. It brought up his guilt, see. So you get well when you, or you heal your parents when you get well. He says, your mother loved all you kids very much, but you must remember that she was very sick from the booze and was not responsible for her insane behavior. She was sick. Nobody talked about her death. That was swept under the rug, too. But your mother was a very good mother. She nursed you kids through your sick spells many times, and she kept you clean and healthy. I was to an AA meeting last night. Interesting how timely all this was. I heard someone say how they felt about someone they had failed to try to help, and it brought back memories of my own guilt feelings. I had promised Bill I was going to try to get some woman at the club to see her, but I kept putting it off until it was too late. So I have had my share of guilt feelings. I have to use that serenity prayer a lot. That's that. I didn't know about any of this until he wrote this. 
Rick, we are all responsible for our own behavior, but sometimes we are so sick we can't control ourselves and we become overwhelmed. But thanks to AA, we have tools to work with and people who support us. I want to thank you for your wonderful letter. You owe me nothing. I am very happy to hear how well you are doing. Your mother would be very happy for you. This is making amends, too. I'm enclosing a couple of cards for you and Pam to carry. It's a very special poem for me. I sometimes pass them out when I speak at AA meetings down here in Florida. I think the meaning is very good. That's the man in the glass card. Don't worry about living up to your sponsor's expectations or your AA meeting's expectations. If you're okay with the guy in the mirror looking back at you, you're okay. You don't have to live up to other people's ideals. That's the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous. You start to get that freedom. You don't have to live up to anybody's ideals but your own. And if you're not okay with yourself, you're going to hate yourself. This will be all for now, Rick. Greet Pam for me and also Austin and Wyatt. Those are my two boys. Love to all of you and keep the faith there. I didn't expect this. I didn't write that first letter to get this. You know, my brother Bill died drunk. Nine years older than I am. Talked to him a week before he died. So angry at his childhood. And I wanted to share some of this stuff with him. And he couldn't hear it. He wouldn't hear it. He wasn't interested. He was too busy being angry and judging. Judging my dad for being a crappy parent. Yet my brother Bill destroyed his own family through his own alcoholism. And I'll bet anything he never cleaned up his mess with his own kids. But he was very judgmental toward my dad. And he died drunk, angry. He wanted this letter in the worst way from my dad. And he never got it. The difference between Bill being dead and me being alive is that I wrote the first letter. I took inventory and I got honest. And God helped me see it different. And believe in God at the time. And literally, I had an experience where I saw things differently, and I wrote that first letter. I didn't write it to get this. I wrote it to clean up my mess because I felt so poorly about the way I'd been treating him for 25 years based on a story that wasn't even accurate. I'd been lying to myself and, and keeping all my mistakes on that man, and he's a good man. And I had a chance to spend. He just died. He died on the 23rd of December. Just died. He was 96 years old. He would have been 97 yesterday. And I had the last 10 years he was moved back to Minnesota and I was taking him over to the mission with me every week and we were putting on an AA meeting and we spent a lot of time together. And he told me stories about what happened in his childhood and we'd drive by someplace and he'd tell me, oh, I used to live there. And he'd say that about about every month or two, he'd tell me the same story, but it was all right. I didn't mind that. Yeah, that's all people that are paid to the yeah. ass. But I loved him, you see, and he loved me, and I and I knew that. And we didn't have any unfinished business, guys. None. There's no unfinished business between us. So when he died, I didn't have all this grief and all this heartache. My brother Bob, who's 10 years older than I am, who's a doctor, got a Ph.D., very bright man, directed the Red Cross, Blood Bank in the seventh state area. Very successful, bright guy. I was talking to him at Christmas, and he's all bound up. He's working at the university now. He retired from the Red Cross. He went right to the top at the university. He went over there to work part-time to teach the doctors. And you know what happened? He's directing the damn medical program at the university now. He's working part-time. And he's miserable. I saw him at Christmas, and he's hurting. He's angry at his dad, and his dad just died, and he can't do anything about it, see? 
Isn't that sad? He's 10 years older than I am, and he's boned. And I'm free. He's got everything. I got nothing compared to him. He's miserable, and I'm happy. Wow. I'll take my life any day before his. Any day. I cleaned up my own mess. I got honest, and it changed. Thank God I had that time with my dad. I feel so grateful to AA for that. Many people miss it because what? They won't examine themselves. They won't be get honest with themselves. This is really a mistake to not do this. Yet we got all kinds of people who stay sober on fellowship alone in AA. And then maybe we did some treatment center for stuff that had nothing to do with what we're talking about now. And then you go around, you teach that to some new guy. And then they leave AA because they're not having a transformative experience. And we say things like, well, he just wasn't ready. And to heck with him. And he's not ready. Let him drink some more. Hey, maybe we got some responsibility in this to help him. Not just talk to him about problems, but sit down and go through inventory. Well, the book says carry this message, not carry some other message. <laughs> it says carry this message. See, we're doing this in these workshops. The reason this started, really, is Bob had an experience. Tell him your, your story about the Guthrie Theater. Oh, it's, yeah. This well, it's, it's, uh, it's folklore. Uh, I uh, had occasion, I said I was a musician all my life, and I, I uh, had occasion to write some music for a play at the Guthrie Theater some years ago. And... So the rehearsals are done, and we're getting the play on stage. And I'm up in the control room with the director and watching the play. And he said, uh, I have to go and do a show in Connecticut, but I'll be back in about six weeks. And I said, well, the show is on stage. Why are you coming back? Your job is done here, isn't it? And he said, oh, no, no. He said, I have to come back periodically to take out the improvements. The actors are improving their parts changing the lines, changing the positioning a little bit, changing the timing a little bit. And pretty soon the play doesn't look quite the same as it's supposed to look. Pretty soon it looks like my play, the star is it's my show. And so the director said, I have to come back from time to time and take out the improvements. This is this well, is what we're trying to we're do. We're trying to take out the improvements from Alcoholics <laughs> Anonymous that have, uh, have cropped up along the way like my part. Yeah, there's lots of improvements that were made to this process. And I'm telling you, it's a major mistake to not stay with the alcohol Anonymous book with all this. Because there was no four-step before AA. It didn't exist. There is no other form of four-step. This is what the four-step is. This, this came from the Oxford groups, which our founders were members of. And the Oxford group had six tenets. And they took the six tenets of the Oxford groups and they divided it up and they made the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. So this is where the 12 steps came from. This this is the 12 steps. Period. End of story. There are no other 12 steps. These, these are the 12 steps. So other fellowships have grabbed onto these and other groups have grabbed onto these and made some changes and we'll fix this and we'll adjust that. And But we have a lot of folklore and, and we're just trying to take out some of the improvements. So this is important. So... Maybe we can get on to the fears. Well, at the bottom of page 67, because there's another form of inventory here that's going to emerge on fears, because there were some sheets that were done that came out of some, some big book seminars that, that inventoried the fears just like the resentments. And it's not accurate for the book. We'll show you what's in the book. 
they'll say that this is a template and all the inventories are done on this same template and that's not, not the case. That's not, not accurate with the book says. We'll show you. We'll show you in the book because I don't expect you to just believe it because we say it. We could be full of crap, you know, and frequently have been. So we'll read it out of the book and see what the book says. Okay? If we're if we're distorting this, tell us. I'd like to hear it because I I'm not against changing if I'm doing something stupid. I want to know. This is the uh, last paragraph on page 67. Notice that the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties with Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, the employer, and the wife. That's on page 65 in the third column. You see where fear is bracketed? That's what they're talking about. Okay. The anger comes from fear. This short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread the fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. But did not we ourselves set the ball rolling? Sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. Okay, so here, look at what this says. Fear, I did not understand at all when I got sober. I knew I was angry. I had no awareness of fear. I was feeling fear and experiencing it. I just didn't even recognize it for what it was. It always came out as anger for me. See? So, and they understand that, and that's why they get us to inventory the anger first. Because then you start to become aware of that you're actually fearful. So now we're going to have another experience with, with inventory only based in fear. But here's what they say. It says, fear was an evil and corroding thread, right? The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. Now, here, this sentence used to bother me. It, meaning fear, set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. I'll give you an example. Pam and I were together for 11 years. She was a good-looking woman. We'd be out to the bars. Men were always on her. And it was just a pain for me because I was insecure and I got a stormy relationship with her, and now some other guy's talking to her, getting along with her. And I remember this one guy, he was a good-looking guy, big guy, you know, and they're getting along, and I'm threatened. I feel very th I feel the fear, see? So then you try and do something. You go into action out of your fears. The guy goes to the restroom, so I start slamming him to her. What a jerk he is. Look at this, look at that. And I make a complete fool of myself doing this, see? But I don't know that. I think I'm I'm accomplishing something here. Oh, I am, but it's not what I want. This puts a stake between me and her. It makes it even worse. So as time went on, I wouldn't even bring her out to places like that. I would just avoid those situations. I'd go out there, but I wouldn't bring her with because I didn't want to have to deal with that. I'm jealous. I'm insecure. Well, when you try and control somebody like this, what happens? They pull away from you. What I wanted to bring us closer together literally started to divide us, okay? And as time went on, I literally pushed her right away from me. My fear set in motion trains of circumstances which brought me misfortune I felt I didn't deserve. You see that now? But did not we ourselves set the ball rolling? My fear brought about the very thing I didn't want to have happen out of my controllingness and my aggressiveness around it. And that's, the more you look at your fears, the more you'll see that if this stuff is running your life, it's going to be a nightmare. So they're going to give us an inventory now on how to inventory fear. 
We reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper, even though we had no resentment in connection with them. Okay. Do you see, see what they're saying now? We're going to look at our fears thoroughly. Now, generally, people, I've heard people talk in the podium like this. It just drives me crazy. They, well, I'm afraid of spiders. I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid. No, 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 no. We're not talking about that. We're talking about where am I afraid of losing what I got? Where am I afraid of not getting what I want? Bring the fear back home. The fear is in me. Review your fears. What am I afraid of losing? Well, I'm afraid of losing my job. I'm afraid of losing my wife. Afraid of losing my money. Afraid of losing my, my mind. I'm afraid of whatever. If I'm afraid of spiders, it's because I'm afraid the spider will bite me and I'll get sick. Or something. Something will happen. Because if, if my fear is out here, if I'm afraid of you, I'm screwed. I can't do a thing about it. All I can do is hide from you. But if I take responsibility for what I'm afraid of, I can look at what I'm afraid of. I can see my fear. And I can become aware of what's going on. So what am I afraid of losing? What am I afraid of not getting? And just write it down. Now you will have reviewed your fears thoroughly, right? And you'll have put them on paper, even though I had no resentment in connection with them. I don't have a resentment in connection with this fear. So I'll write, you might find more resentment, by the way, as you do this toward others. Now it goes on. And once you've got that down, then what happens? We ask ourselves why we had them. Yeah, what's the worst that could happen if this fear came true? Maybe play the scene out in your mind. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? Am I fearful because I'm reliant on myself? Self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. You know, we generally think that the ego manifests itself as the guy thinks he's better than other people. Oh, he thinks he's better. He's acting grandiose. No, it's not like that at all. He thinks he's less than, and what you're seeing is his overcompensation for his insecurity. That's why he's acting that way. It's not because he thinks he's better. He thinks he's less than, and, we're, and they look silly when they overcompensate. The guy in our meeting, give you an example, he's a, he's a narrow guy about 5'8", you know, not real big, but he's lifting weights, and he's built well. Well, he used to walk in, you know, he kind of walk around pumped up, you know, you know how people do this, they put on errors. He'd walk in the room, and when he'd walk in the room, he'd turn sideways, go walk through the door. Well, he didn't need to turn sideways, he wasn't, he's only narrow, I mean, it's not like he was wider than the door, but he's doing that in his mind, you know. So he thinks he's like a wiener dog. He thinks he's big, you know? Well, you look at a guy, oh, he thinks he's better. No, 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 that's insecurity. Guys who carry guns aren't tough. They're afraid. Don't you understand that? You carry a gun because you need to have such an edge over everybody else to feel okay. That's not security or, or toughness. That's fear that does that. See? That's the problem with this. So we're going to look at our fears. This, this sentence, too, you know, I, when I was a kid, I used to watch a lot of Westerns. And it says, some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. And when it makes you cocky, it's worse. This is analogous in my mind to, a, to a, the, the movies when I was a child. The Westerns. The guy's drinking at the bar. Now, he's the fastest draw in that town. And he's cocky and he's a jerk and everybody's reacting to him and he thinks they respect him but they really are just afraid of him 
they're afraid that he's going to blow their rear off or something, you know? And he probably is, because he's killing people, see? He's a maniac. He's a maniac. So he's drinking at the bar, and he thinks, and he, he's the big man. But then he hears the story. Ringo is coming. You know, Ringo's always coming. It's just the way it is in those movies. <laughs> Ringo has to come. It's just the way it was. So he hears the story. He's in the other town. I don't know if I can beat him. I've heard stories. He's got great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. And when it makes it you know, cocky, it's worse because people react to the cockiness. And Ringo shows up, and sure as heck, he blows his rear off or something, you know. It's just, it's the way the movies always were, but it's a great illustration of, you can, let's say you're a woman and you've been cheated by auto mechanics. Well, I'll learn all, I've known women who do this. Oh, yeah. I'll go to school, I'll learn all I can about auto mechanics, so I won't get cheated anymore. That's called self-reliance. And you know what? You know you can't, you, you're never going to be smart enough. It's like looking at the world through a straw. You see a little point out on the wall over there. You know there's a big world going on around you. You can't see the big picture. You don't know what's going to happen later today or next week or next month. So you try and determine how to handle things based on what you can see. And you know you're inadequate. And the more reliance you have on that inadequate guy, the more fear you're going to have. In fact, the fear will be directly proportional to your reliance on yourself. Because you know as a human concern, you're inadequate, don't you? Haven't you come to that yet? I mean, we're in AA. Obviously, you didn't get here by success. <laughs> Just lucky, I guess. Yeah. We're not a success story. We're a failure. I failed at everything I did. So this is the problem with self-reliance. It doesn't eliminate fear. In fact, it makes you worse. It makes you more fearful because you know you're incapable of dealing with things at a larger level. You just can't do it. It's crazy. Self-reliance was good as far as it went. Right. It didn't go far enough. Right. Do what I can. Turn over the rest. Perhaps there is a better way. We think so. For we are now on a different basis the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns. Just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity. That's a promise. I mean, it really will happen to us. Because I've been in some pretty crazy situations in sobriety where I've done some pretty stupid things. And I was okay. I, did, I wasn't freaking out. I was able to hold my own center. Okay? God gave me the ability to match calamity. With yeah, I, uh, I had a pretty amazing experience around that. Uh, I was <clears throat> going to uh, move to uh, Hollywood and uh, do more, try to get into the film business. I've been writing music for advertising and corporate films and all that stuff for many years. I had never done a feature film, theatrical movie. And I wanted to do that. I was going to move to Hollywood, and then it, it occurred to me that uh, I had some heart conditions and had open-heart surgery and some stuff going on. I thought that uh, I'd be okay to have that be the one thing that I didn't get to do in my life. I'm okay with that. I came, you know, I made peace with that idea and decided I was going to stay here. And I get a phone call from a, a guy that's the director's been making a movie up in Alaska. 
He lives in Minnesota, and he's, a, he's got a composer in New York, but he doesn't want to leave town anymore. He wants to be able to stay home with his family. And, and uh, so he asked this friend of mine, is there anybody here locally that I can get to write music for this movie? Well, my friend Bob can write music. So here I go. The thing that I was going to move to Hollywood for, now here it comes. I've got a, a movie to score. I don't like to talk about happiness. And, you know, the big book doesn't talk about happiness. We talk a lot about being happy. There's a lot of things in life that are not happy. This is serenity we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Serenity. Acceptance. Okay? So, in the middle of, the, of doing this movie, Joe decides he's going to kill himself. He was, had been sober a couple of years. In fact, I, I got into AA because of my son Joe. I followed him to an AA meeting one night. But he uh, things just kind of built up on him, and he decided he couldn't handle it anymore when I'm death drunk, and he killed himself. So we finish doing the movie, and we go to Hollywood, and uh, we're conducting the orchestra, and we're doing all that stuff, and going to the release parties, and all that blah blah. And people are saying to me, "How could what a courageous guy you are! How could you possibly do that? How could you? How could you do that? You're so amazing!" And all I could say is, "I, I had nothing to do with it." I literally had nothing to do with it. I don't know what happened. I really do not know what happened. I know only that God enabled me to match calamity with surrender. I don't know how I got through that. The day after we went to Joe's funeral, I went in my studio and I put my head down on the keyboard and I cried for about three hours. And I asked God for help. And I got through it. And I, I have no idea what happened except that I didn't do it. So. Self-reliance was going to fail you on that one. Self-reliance was... was Nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. And God enabled me to match calamity with surrender. That was pretty amazing. Pretty amazing experience. We never apologize to anyone for depending upon our Creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality is a way of weakness. Paradoxically, it is the way of strength. The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let him demonstrate through us what he can do. See, this is the problem with me. As an atheist, was I would take the credit. Okay? Instead, we let God demonstrate through us what he can do, not what I can do. You know what happens if you take the credit for things? And I know this from my own life. Your fear level will increase. The more, it's like blowing up a balloon. The more you blow up the balloon, the thinner the sides get. Well, that's what happens when you blow up your ego. The bigger you make your ego, the more sensitive you become. And you're always going to worry that somebody's going to come along and burst your balloon. Expose you for the fraud you are. Because somewhere you know you're not doing it. You're not making these things happen like you think, you know. I mean, the, the stuff that's really helpful. Uh, I'm always trying to maneuver things from my selfishness, okay? That's the problem. The selfishness has always been my problem. So, you know, as time has gone on, I've started to see that you give the credit to God. I, I started reading things in the New Testament, like with Jesus and stuff like that, just for the heck of it. I'm not a religious guy, but I, I wanted... He was such a radical, I liked what he was doing. I mean, he was on the edge. So that appealed to me, see? And he never took the credit. That was the thing. He never took... He always gave the credit to God, not me. When good things happened, I took the credit. When bad things happened, I gave it to everybody else. And that was a, that's a tough spot. 
So here's, here's this idea. Instead, we let God demonstrate through us what he can do, not what I can do. What would, what would happen if I wanted to take the credit for that, if I wanted to take the responsibility for that? I had My dad had a bunch of handguns, and I inherited them when dad passed away, and I got rid of almost all of them. There was one handgun. For some reason, I wanted to keep this stupid gun, and I had it in my uh, dresser in the bedroom. And Joe stole this gun out of my dresser. I didn't know he had taken it. And he used that gun to shoot himself with. And if I took the credit for that, I would be, and I, I, it took me some time to get past this. I'd, I'd be the worst dad in the history of the world, wouldn't I? My kid killed himself with a gun that I had. That you decided to hang on to. Isn't that, you know, I would be the worst dad that ever lived. And, and uh, I had to pray a lot to get through this. But if I had taken credit for that, I don't, I'm not sure I'd be alive today. But I had to realize that that was not, that's not something I'm responsible for. It's kind of an Al-Anon concept there, I guess, isn't it? But I, I can't take responsibility for that because it's, I didn't do that. It's, it's arrogant in a very real sense. We're often taking responsibility for things that have nothing to do with us and then not taking responsibility for things that have everything to do with me. It's amazing how you want to hurt yourself that way. I, I, I've seen this in myself. And this this is not about bad me, good me, anything else. This is just simply an awareness of what it was. I'm, I'm just looking at what it was. I'm looking at what the situation was. So instead we let him demonstrate to us what he can do. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. What he would have us be, demonstrate, be an, a, a demonstrator of. At once we commence to outgrow fear. So this is the idea here then. At the top of 68, and we made these sheets up, and I think you guys got them. On one side it says fear, on the other side it says sex, conduct. Uh, we're going to, on the fear one, the way we put it on the sheet is exactly the way it's laid out in the book. It says, what am I afraid of losing? We reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper even though we had no resentment in connection with them. So the way you review your fears is, what am I afraid of losing? What am I afraid of not getting? That's your fear. That's putting them on paper. Then ask yourself why we have the fear. What's the worst that could happen? Maybe you want to play the thing out in your mind. All the different scenarios that could possibly come of it. What's the worst that could happen? Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? Do I have this fear because I'm reliant on myself? Yeah. And once you start to see this, you'll start to realize what's going on. That your fear, but it helps to have the experience. I think this fear inventory is primarily just to get some awareness of what's going on so you can stop blaming other people for why you're afraid. Take responsibility for your own fears. You can't do something about other people. What you're aware of, you have a chance of controlling. What you're not aware of is going to control you. That's the problem, see? And if I'm unaware, it's still affecting me, regardless of whether I look or not. So to look will be the way you'll get out of it. At least then you can make better choice and ask God to help you. Even if you don't believe in God, just do it. See if you don't get results. You don't have to believe in God. He believes in you. He helped me long. You know, I, I made that commitment early on. That commitment, I'll do anything, carried me when I didn't believe. As time went on, I came to believe through experiences, see? 
That's really the way it happens. So, so now you've got it down. Just write it down. You get, get some awareness of what's been going on inside of you. This is what we're trying to do. Are there any questions about this? This is pretty simple. It seems almost too simple, doesn't it? This is how basic the inventory has been. We, we make it real complicated. It is too simple. It's, it's so simple I don't want to do it. It's too simple. Yeah. This couldn't possibly have any effect. Well, you're right. If you won't do it, it will have, couldn't possibly have any effect. But if you'll write this stuff, and then the, the best reason would be when you go to sponsor somebody or help somebody else, then you can take them through this process. Not to fix them, but to show them the mechanics of how to write inventory. That's all we're doing. We don't have answers. We're just showing the mechanics of it. Read the book. Take it out of the book. This worked for the first hundred people. We read that at the beginning of this thing. That's really the sponsorship idea, isn't it? That uh, we want to show you what we did. The, the founders are, are writing the book to show us what they did. When I sponsor somebody, I want to, well, here's what I did. You want to take a shot at this. Give this a try. Here's what I did, and here's the results I got out of it. That's Give it a try. See if you have the same results I did. That's happened to our fellowship, and I think it's sad, and I did this too. You know, there's a tendency to get real smart. You read a little of the book, then you get real smart. And then you start telling everybody instead of sharing what you did. You following me? And, st and I'm telling you, drunks can't stand to be told anything. As soon as you start telling somebody, they go, oh, geez, that, that's a, man, I know this because I do a meeting at the mission in St. Paul, and these guys are heavyweights. And they'll get right in your face, you know, and, and you're going in there alone and you got a room full of people who think opposite of the way you do, see. And I learned real early on through just experience that you have to put this stuff out there in a way that's acceptable, okay? And, if you, and that's why the big book was written from their experience. They wrote their collective experiences of what they did and what worked. They're not telling us anything. They're sharing, this is what we did. If you want what we have, do what we did, see. Well, I heard that message, and I picked the big book up. I just started doing it, and it induced the experiences that they said would happen. And it's true. It worked. Okay? It's not good, bad, right, wrong. It's what worked. So, I, so now we got all kinds of people who are telling others what to do. I'm going to sponsor you, tell you when you should get up, how long you got to be sober before you can have a relationship. All this crap. That's just crazy. We're going to address some of that stuff in the in the conduct inventory after the break. But this there, there's so much folklore, as Bob calls it, around Alcoholics Anonymous about a lot of stuff. The other book is really so adamant about getting your reliance upon a God. It'll say it over and over and over. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do, is get our dependency on God instead of people. But when you get, we got a, I, I'm telling you, the numbers are not good. We, in the, since 1991 or 92, we have lost numbers, people, in, in AA. We were over 2 million, 2 million 300,000, something like that, in 91 or 2, we peaked. We've, we're actually going backwards. In the last 16 years, we have lost membership. Why is that? The problem hasn't gone away. There's 275 million people in the United States alone. 275 or 280 million. They figure 10% are alcohol. That would be 28 million, right? Just alcohol, not drugs. In AA, we are 2 million people worldwide, and we haven't grown in the last 16 years by general service statistics, general service office. You can get the statistics, call them, we'll send you the sheet. 
we've actually gone backwards. Somebody told me we've lost ground. We're under two million. I don't know if that's true. That's what I've heard from somebody just the last couple of days or last couple of weeks. And I, you know, if that's true, and I think it is, we you could say, well, it's because you know these guys aren't ready, or what? Is it because that, or are we just not attractive? If we're telling everybody what to do, do you think people drunks don't like that? They'll walk, they'll just leave the fellowship over that crap. See? Maybe we're just not attractive. This is a question I had to look at. Not to take responsibility for something that has nothing to do with me, but to be honest with myself about what's going on. I know that when I start telling people stuff, they back away from me, man. They just But if I share what I did, then they'll listen. It's all in how you present stuff, see. Worldwide, two million people. Isn't that something? Wow. We should have, even if we're 100% off, we should, we should be way larger than that if we were attractive. So there's something wrong here, and I don't know what it is, but, uh, but I got some suspicions about it. Yeah. Well, alcoholism is really rampant all over the world. I mean, this thing is not smaller. It's, it's. I, I don't know. I, I know that at 2218, they're constantly trying to raise money in different ways, and they try and do it through dances and things like that. I'll tell you what's been effective. Sit down with guys and help them do inventory, and they'll give their money out of gratitude. But you're not going to force them to give their money if you haven't helped them. But if you've helped them and they've had a significant transformative experience, they will want to give to your cause. But if you don't have that experience and we're not teaching transformation of mind, then people just leave. And then we say, oh, they weren't ready. or You know, we want to put it on everybody else. Well, what well, are we doing with it? You this? know, I'm sure we've all been to the kind of meetings that you leave the meeting and you say, well, I'm not going back there anymore. I hate to have that attitude, but we've all had that kind of experience. Or I just, well, those guys don't have anything I want. You know, we're not attractive because of, uh, the whole purpose of this is a way out. There's a solution to this terrible problem that I have, this terrible disease that I have. There's a way out. And if I can help you find a way out for yourself, boy, what's more attractive than that? I just can't stand to live this way anymore. Okay, you don't have to live this way anymore. Here's what a bunch of other people did, and they don't have to live that way anymore. That's attractive. But it's got to be a transformative experience, yeah. man. Guys coming in today just don't have time to sit around in the meetings and just get it through a 20-year period. They're too radically crazy, and they need something to shift them. You know, I, I got hooked up with old timers at 2218. I loved the old timers. They held my hand. They walked me through a lot of stuff, you know. But they did not teach me this inventory. I learned this inventory through doing it through the book. And then I figured out what happened to me by teaching it to other people. The more I tried to help other guys learn this, the more I learned it myself. And I got through. This is what happened to Bob. Yeah, I came into this. I went to a workshop that Rick was doing with somebody else. And uh, I went to a couple of those, and I, I thought about stuff. You know, I was kind of playing with it, not really doing much, but playing around with it. And then uh, Rick asked me if I'd sit in and do a work. The other guy couldn't do one, and he asked me if I would sit in. Why he came to me, I don't know, but uh, I guess God had something to do with it. And uh, I thought, if I'm going to do a workshop, I'm going to be sitting up there telling people to write inventory, I should probably write some inventory. 
I should, maybe I should see what this is before I advocate it to others. <coughs> and I wrote some inventory. I wrote some inventory about my son Joe and my son Richard and the relationship that uh, the younger one had always been resentful of me because he felt I was holding up the older one as a role model that he had to live up to. And, of course, I would never do anything like that. And so I, I was kind of angry at him. And I wrote, I wrote about it. I sat down and I wrote about it. It was like wham. Transformative experience was instant. I was sitting in the office up to 2218 with my legal pad. Instant experience. I just saw that my whole story was just a bunch of BS. And I was subjecting Richard to all this stuff that I had not intended to do, didn't realize I was doing. And the next thing I had to do was I had to make an amend to Richard. I had to say, you know, you're right. I was doing that. And I'm sorry because I didn't, I don't mean to do that. And it's not true. And it's not, there's no justification in that at all. I don't even know why I'm doing it. There's a tendency to justify poor behavior by somebody else's poor behavior. Because somebody else is acting like an idiot doesn't justify me acting like an idiot. And you can hang your hat on stuff like that, too. You know, I've had to learn to be honest. You know, there's a pamphlet called A Member's Eye View of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it says in here, and this is, this is not written by Bill. This is written by somebody else. It's probably the finest pamphlet, I think, of any of them. He says in here, he says, There must come a day, it seems to me, when every alcoholic, in or out of AA, finally sits down in the presence of his enemies. That's what you do when you write an inventory, isn't it, on the resentments? You sit down in the presence of your grievances, your anger toward others. When he does, he will be amazed to discover that he is attending a meeting of one himself. You see this? You see this? This man had this experience. The day the alcoholic in AA realizes that his enemy is within, that the tigers are largely creatures of his own design and lurk in his own unconscious. That is the day when, for him, AA becomes what I believe its founders meant it to be, a flight into reality. That sounds like a twilight zone, doesn't it? You mean I'm not living in reality? No, I, I tell you, it's much better. My reality is much more gentle. You know, people say to me once in a while, how's the world treating you? Exactly the way I'm treating it. You're going to receive what you're giving. What you sow, you reap. It's just the way it is, see? And if you're attacking people and you're judgmental, and this, you're going to receive I'm telling you, you're getting exactly what you're giving. I didn't see that until after I'd been sober a little bit, but I could see that I, I took and took and took until it was all gone. But every culture has seen this in one way or another. Karma, what goes around comes around. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Everybody has seen this idea. And get it till you give it. And get it till you give it. So why don't we take a break here? We'll get we'll finish this up in the uh, the conduct inventory is really the a great section and uh, just write write a little bit. See what yeah, happens. It's, a, it's about sex. You don't want to miss it. We got videos. <laughs> we got. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.